Um, we have been talking for the last, what, five weeks now, this is our sixth week, about, about what? Okay, <laughs> good. One person knows, that's good. <laughs> We're talking about the power of the name of Jesus. First three weeks, we talked about salvation in the name of Jesus, and we started from Matthew 1, 21. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. And then we went after that to, what did we do after that? Uh, Romans, Romans 10, 13, right? And the scripture was, Whoever, whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. Amen. That's Romans 13, 10. I'm not sure if I said 10, 13. It's 13, 10. And then um, after that, we talked about uh, Acts 4. When Peter said there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name is given among men by which we might be saved. Amen? Now, today is our third week in that passage in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul said that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And we want to understand that passage. What does it mean that in the name or at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow? Amen? That's the power of the name of Jesus. So this is our third week trying to break down this passage. So let's read it. Uh, again, I challenged us last week to try to memorize it. So if you can do that, that will be awesome. If you can say it as far as you can, um, without looking to the text, that would be great. I'm going to try to do that myself. I'm going to try to say it from uh, the NIV, since uh, I think it's the most accurate to the Greek. So um, we're going to read from verse um, 4, uh, actually 5. Well, uh, 4. It says, do not look merely at your own personal interest, but at the interest of others. Amen? Verse 5, it says, have that attitude, that mindset. Can you help me out? Which was in Christ Jesus. All right? Why? How did Jesus put other interests upon himself? And then here is what the NIV says. Who was in the very nature God. He did not want to hold onto equality with God for his own advantage, right? But he humbled himself. Actually, he poured out himself. He made himself nothing. How? We, said, we talked last week. He did three things. That's how he made himself nothing. Number one, by taking the form of a sla slave, a bond servant. By being in the very nature, slave. Amen? And number two, by... Being made in the likeness of man. That's number two. And number three, by being found in the appearance of man. What did he do? He humbled himself even more and became obedient to, the, to death, even the death on the cross. Amen? What happened as a result of that? For this reason also, God has highly exalted him. Amen? Put him in the highest place. Exalted him. Not only that, but he has given him the name which is above every name. How? That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall confess that Jesus is Lord. What is the ultimate goal of all of this? The glory of God the Father. Amen? So let's just uh, keep on digging into that passage today. We stopped last week when we said how Jesus 
poured out himself, made himself nothing. And we said he did three things, right? Number one, taking the form of a slave. Number two, being born in the likeness of man, right? And number three, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself to the point of death. So last week we stopped at the first part that Jesus did, which is taking the form of a slave. Amen? Today we're going to finish up how Jesus humbled himself all the way down to the cross. And we're going to talk about these last two phrases. Number one, by being found, by being born or by being made in the likeness of man. And number two, which is being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Amen? So that's where we're going to stop today. Amen? All right. By being born in the likeness of men. Now, the word being born actually kind of like in the Greek comes from a different verb. It's, it's being made or it implies um, starting, you know, like he began or he uh, was made in the form of man. He wasn't like this before, but then he became like that. Okay. So it's a different word than, for example, what Paul was saying in verse six, when he said, who, although he existed in the form of God. Okay. I want you to notice the contrast. When Paul talked about Jesus' eternal status as the son of God, he said that Jesus existed, use that Greek word, existed in the form of God. Amen? But when he talked about the human nature of Christ, he said he was made in the likeness of man. He started at some point to become man. He begotten or he began or he was made man at some point. You guys follow that? Do you see how he's contrasted? The eternal Christ already for all times has existed in the form of God. But when it came to being in the form of man, he started at some point to be in the form of man at the point of his incarnation. Amen? In doing that, Paul is pretty much kind of like mirroring what John was saying in John chapter 1. If you guys remember John chapter 1, verse 1. Can somebody help me? In the beginning was... The word and the word was with God and the word was God. So John said the word was God and he used verb to be in English. Verb to be existed as God, right? But then if you scroll all the way down, I think it's verse 14. He said, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you see what John is doing? It's the exact same thing that Paul, Paul was doing here. When it comes to talking about Jesus being in the form of God, he is in the form of God, right? But when it comes to his incarnation, taking the form of man, John didn't say, and the word is flesh and is tabernacle among us, right? He said the word what? became flesh. He started to become flesh at some point. He wasn't flesh for all eternity, but at the point of his incarnation, he became flesh. Amen? And pretty much that's the same idea that Paul was talking about here. Jesus eternally existed in the form of God, but at the point of his incarnation, he being born, he was made to be in the likeness of man. Amen? Now, here's something for you guys. Just in a side note, John 1.1, 1, 1, the, the word was God. The Greek doesn't have a definite article before the word God, okay? So we have this big fight with Jehovah Witnesses who say that the correct translation should be, and the word was a God, because it doesn't have a definite article in Greek, okay? 
Now, we say, no, even though the, the definite article is not there, it should be still translated and the word was that God, like it refers to God Almighty. And we have that fight between us and them about Greek grammar. Do you want to hear the answer to this? You don't yeah. want to know who, which one is right? We are. We are. Actually, we're wrong. No, God is. <laughs> God is right. Yeah, but we want to know what's his mind, what he's starting to tell us. You don't want to know what the answer to this? We're actually both wrong. We're wrong because it, it sure doesn't have a definite article and it should not be translated God Almighty. I can, it's a big difference. But it's also, it's not indefinite. What John was trying to tell us in John 1.1 is not discussing the identity of the word, but he was trying to tell us the nature of the word. And that's a big difference. Let me explain that to you. In John 1.18, when it says the word became flesh, in Greek, John 1.18, the word became flesh, and John 1.1, the word was God, there are grammatically identical. There is absolutely no difference. The order of the words, the order of the verbs, everything is just identical. So if you want to understand John 1, 1, it might help us to understand John 1, 18. So here is the question. John 1, 18 and the word became flesh. The word flesh in Greek also doesn't have a definite article before it. Now the question is, here is the question to you guys. Is John trying to tell us that the word became a flesh or that flesh? That flesh? How many people will vote for the flesh? Actually, okay, John was not, John didn't care to tell us if the word became a flesh or the flesh. What John was telling us is there is this the word became fleshly. The word became flesh in his nature. It's not, it's not trying to tell us if the word became a flesh, a random flesh, or he became the flesh, you know? John was just discussing the nature of the word, not. The identity of the word after his incarnation. Amen? And in the same manner... What is that? Yeah, he was on the becoming. Exactly. He, he's, he's telling us the nature that the word has become. What kind of nature he has taken upon himself. And he took the nature of the flesh. That's what John really is trying to tell us. That the word took upon himself the nature of the flesh. Right? And in the same way, we should understand John 1.1. John was not trying to tell us if the word was a God or the God. He was not trying to tell us the identity of the word. He was actually telling us the nature of the word. The point that John was making in John 1.1 and John 1.18 is this. The one who was in the very nature God has become in the very nature man. Amen? Does that sound familiar? Philippians 2, right? That's exactly what Paul was telling us as well. The exact same thing. That the one who was in the very, existed in the very nature of God for all eternity, humbled himself, emptied himself, and became in the very nature man. Amen? Amen? Okay, good. Because this is good. It bugged me when I was talking to Jehovah about this because I have no answer for it. Anyways. He was, existed already in the form of God. But again, when it comes to becoming in the form of man, he took upon himself. He became the form of man. A, a, an example of the difference between these two words is what Jesus said, I think it's in John 8, when he said, before Abraham was, somebody help me finish the scripture. Before Abraham was what? I am. And I have to tell you, all English translations screwed up so much what Jesus was actually saying in the Greek. Because we in English say before Abraham was, that's verb to be, right? 
I am, that's also verb to be, right? But the Greek is actually two different words. The very first word before Abraham was actually the verb genomai, which means to become. The exact same word that uh, Paul said here, right here in Philippians 2, in verse, uh, when he said he becoming born in the likeness of flesh, the exact same word that John said in John 1.18, he was becoming, you know, in the, in the nature of the flesh. But then when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, the word am here is verb to be. So the correct translation should be this. Here is the exact translation. Here is precisely what Jesus was saying. Before Abraham came to existence, I am. That's what Jesus was trying to tell us. Amen? Because Abraham did not exist for all eternity, but Jesus did. And that's the difference between Jesus and everybody else. Amen? Good so far? Okay. And this scripture, just by the way, we're out of the notes here, but this is good. Might as well. When I talk to um, Mormons and Mormons tell you, oh, you know, we existed as spirits for all eternity. I always wondered, like, is there a Bible scripture that tells us that we haven't existed before we were born? And actually there is. That one right here in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, before Abraham came to existence, I am. That's a difference. Jesus is not saying that we all existed for all eternity. He's the only one who did. But we all started at the point of our conception or the point of our birth, whatever you want to say. Amen? Before Abraham was, I am. And that's precisely what Paul was telling us here, that he was made. He started at some point to take upon himself the likeness of man, the point of his incarnation. Amen? Amen. Now, notice what Paul said. He said that Jesus took upon himself the form of man. No, it says what? The likeness of man, right? When in, in verse 6, when Paul said, who although existed in the form of God, right? And then he took upon himself the form of a slave, right? We talked about this word before, and we said that means being the exact same nature of. But here, Paul is deviating from that word, and he's saying that Jesus did not was not made in the very nature of man. He was made in the likeness of man, similar to man, not exactly man when it comes to his nature. So it's not deviating away a little bit from that word. Why? Why did Paul say the word likeness instead of the word form of nature? There's a couple of ways to look at this. Number one, when he said he was made in the likeness of man, that means he was actually like you and me. When you look at him, you can see the very nature of the human being. He's like us. That's one way of looking at it. Because sometimes, especially during that time, some people start thinking that Jesus wasn't truly human. So Paul is answering and saying, no, he was just like you and me. That's one way of looking at it. The second way of looking at it is this. Now, Paul is saying that Jesus, who became in the very nature human, is still different than you and me in a couple of ways. Number one, he's sinless, right? That's why he's in the likeness of man. Because we all sin, but he is never sinned. Amen? And number two, might be that Paul is still trying to guard that the belief that Jesus was fully God and fully man in the same time. That's why he is in the likeness of man. Amen? He's like you and me, but the difference is he's fully divine in the same time. You guys follow what Paul is saying here. Amen? Clear like mud? Okay. So he was made in the likeness of man, either because he was sinless or because Paul was still trying to guard his divinity in the same time. So that is the second phrase, how Jesus poured out himself. And then it says, being uh, in the appearance of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, the third phrase, 
being in the appearance of man. It literally means being discovered in the appearance of man, i.e., when that particular Greek word talks about the human verdict, the people who surrounded Jesus, what did they think about him? What did they see about him? That's, that's what the Greek here says. So it says that people who are around him, when they looked at him, they just saw in him a regular man. He was looked at, discovered to be just like you and me in the appearance of man. There was everything about him was so ordinary. There was no halo around her head, around his head. There was nothing supernatural about his appearance that you would be like, why? This is truly the son of God. He's just like you and me. Amen? And the word appearance here is actually always in contrast to the word form that Paul was saying. Appearance usually talk about the outside looks. But the word form that we talked about before talks about the very inside essence, the very inside nature. You guys follow what Paul is trying to tell us here, okay? So it says that he was, after he was discovered, after he was witnessed as being in the very appearance of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, the death of the cross. Amen? Now, Paul is telling us three things that Jesus did to humble himself or to pour out himself. Number one, he took the form of a slave. Number two, he being made in the likeness of man. And number three, he is being found in the appearance of man. The first two phrases that Paul talked about, he's talking about the eternal Christ, right? He was the one who, the eternal Christ, who, what? Made himself to be a slave. And number two, he being made in the form or the likeness of man, right? But this last phrase here, Paul is not talking about the eternal Christ. He's talking about the incarnate Christ. How Jesus, after his incarnation, was still obedient to God. Even to the point that after he was found as a man, he still humbled himself even more to go to the cross. Amen? You guys follow what Paul is telling us here. Amen? And again, the word appearance is very similar to the word likeness that he just said. And again, it seems like Paul is precisely choosing these words here, not the word form or morphe that we talked about before, because he wanted to guard the full divinity of Christ. He's saying he was found in the appearance of man. The outside shell was a man, but what was inside was full divinity. In a way, that's what Paul is trying to tell us here. Amen? Follow me so far? Questions? Clear like mud? Good. Okay. What is that? Oh, do you have questions? No, I'm just not sure where you are in the outline. Oh, I'm uh, second page being found in the appearance of man. I'm just um, I'm saying what I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Now, the word humbled, he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death. The word humble here made, made himself lower, to be ashamed. It's different than the word he poured out himself that we just discussed earlier. It just says that he made himself lower. He put himself in a way to shame. And that is the exact same word that Paul used in verse 3. If you go back to the passage, let's read verse 3 together. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or uh, conceit, but in what? Humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also in the interest of others. And then he's using Jesus as an example, how Jesus did that. So he said that he humbled himself. The man Jesus, Paul is saying, the man Jesus, not the divine Christ, the man Jesus humbled himself to go to the cross. So he's telling the Philippians, 
Remember that. Jesus as a human being was your example. And the human Christ humbled himself to, to even die on the cross. Therefore, when he's telling them live in humility and walk in humility, he's showing them that this is just not random example, but Christ Jesus has done that right before, the life, before, before Paul was commanding them to do that. You guys follow me? All right. So he's saying, um, you guys watch it for me. All right. So he's saying, um, he humbled himself even to the point of death, the death on the cross. Now, let's look at that for a little bit. The point of death, even the death on the cross. The word even, even, that's like so emphatic. What Paul is trying to tell us here that this was the ultimate humility of the Son of God that he will even go down all the way down to die on the cross. While Paul was telling us this is the very bottom, right? You guys remember last week when we said that um, Jesus took upon himself the form of a slave and we discussed how Jesus lived his life as a slave. He was born in a manger. He was deprived. He was demeaned. He was treated wrong and all this stuff, right? And then but Paul was saying that this is all nothing compared to what he finally did when he went to the cross to die for you and me. Amen? Even to the point of death. This is for Paul the lowest of everything. And remember, Paul is a Roman citizen, right? And the Philippians are Roman citizens. And if you remember from last week, we said that dying on the cross is so humiliating that the Roman Empire had actually prohibited its citizens from dying on the cross. If you're a Roman citizen, you don't die on the cross. Just This is just so shameful, though disgraceful. You can be a serial killer. You'll be a murderer. You can rape as much as you want. Yet by law, if you're a Roman citizen, you will not die on the cross. They punish you other ways, but they will not punish you by the cross. Why? Because it's so shameful. Now worry about it. Uh, can you turn it off? Yeah, perfect. Because it is so shameful that you cannot even die on the cross. So what Paul was telling the Philippians is this. He's saying that you need to walk in humility. So much so because Jesus was our example. He humbled himself that he died at death. That you and I are not even allowed to die by law. This is how much Jesus lowered himself. That's what Paul was telling the Philippians. Amen? Now... Dying on the cross was so shameful, so disgraceful for people at that time. For the Jewish people, remember from Deuteronomy, we talked about this before. God said that the one who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Remember that scripture? We discussed that when we talked about how Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? So the one who's hanged on a tree, that is like... If you want to show this grace and shame to somebody in the Jewish culture after you kill them, you hang them at a tree on a tree as a sign that this person is so disgraced, so they're so ashamed. God doesn't like them so much so that they are hanged on a tree in that manner. Amen. So that is the Jewish mindset of the cross. Now the Romans' mindset of the cross is the same thing. It was so disgraceful, so shameful for a Roman citizen to die on the cross. It's actually prohibited for that even to happen. Let's look at that guy. Let me see if, that, um, if I can find that quote. This guy, um, Cicero, he's a, he's a Roman philosopher, lived between 106 to 43 before Christ. And he writes this. This is, this is the Jewish, the, I mean, the Roman's mindset about the cross. He said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. 
This is what the philosophers, the Roman philosophers, were telling and writing during that time. That the very thought of the cross, if you're a Roman citizen, you are so highly esteemed, you shouldn't even see or hear anything about the cross because it is such a shameful and a disgraceful death that you should not even die or even think or even see or hear about anything like that. Amen? I like how uh, David McLeod in this article um, wrote, and he said, Jesus did not die a gentle death like Socrates with his cup of hemlock, much less passing on old and full of years like the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Rather, he died like a slave or a coming criminal in torment on a tree of shame. This is how low Jesus has put himself. Now, I went looking a little bit about how is it that you need to die on the cross? And I found this article. I'm going to read most of it. But I just, you know, I just want us to think about this while we're reading. Crucifixion, sometimes I'm just going to paraphrase it because I read it multiple times. Crucifixion in the time of the Romans was not just intended to kill somebody. This is not just a mean to execute somebody. It's more likely a mean to, to, to inflict the massive and the maximum amount of pain that you can ever do. This is not just, you know, let's kill that guy, chop his head off and get him out of the way. It's more like, let's just see how much pain we can put that person through. And again, Roman citizens were not even allowed to die this way. One, this other resource says they only reserved that for Roman citizens who deserved the army. The other article said no Roman citizen whatsoever should die this way. But still, that gives you an idea of how the Romans would look at the cross as so shameful, so torturous, that they would not even allow their own citizen to die this way. So how would it happen? How does it work? Let's start. It all starts with flogging or scourging. So how does it work? Flogging or scourging was done before every crucifixion. This is how the Romans did crucifixion. The scourging was intending to bring the victim to a state of a short death. So in order to shorten the amount that it's going to take this guy to die, they would scourge them first. They scourge them with a whip. And then it says that the whip has iron balls tied with few inches, tied a few inches from the end of each leather thong on the whip. Sometimes sharp, cheap bones would be tied to, the, to its end as well. The iron balls would cause deep bruising, while the leather thongs would cut into the skin. The sheep bones would hasten the process of cutting into the skin. After few lashes, the skin would be cut through and the muscles would begin to cut it cuts the skin and start ripping into the muscles. Blood loss was considerable. And the pain was probably would put the patient into the state of shock. And that's how they actually hastened the death of the person who's crucified. Because they lose so much blood while they're being scourged. And the pain is so much, so they just die faster. That's the whole point of scourging somebody before the cross. After the flogging, the victim would carry his own crossbar, just the, the, the horizontal part, the crossbar, from the flogging area into the city to the crucifixion area outside the city wall. Why would they crucify people outside the city? Here it is. The crucifixion area was always outside the city because the process was horrible and disturbing to the citizens. So they won't let anybody want to see it. They just take him outside the camp outside the city and crucify him there so nobody will see what happens to the one who's been crucified. The upright part of the cross, the horizontal, that, that vertical part, was permanently mounted in the crucifixion area. The part that the victim carried was always the crossbar, the, the, the horizontal part. 
weighing about 75 to 125 pounds. The crossbar would be balanced on the victim's shoulders and their arms would be tied to the crossbar. In this position, if the patient, if the victim tripped off or fell down, they would not use their arms to break their fall and they would likely fall face down into the ground. You imagine that. They have the bar, they wrap their shoulder, their arms around it. So if they trip or fall, they have no arms to hold them down. They just fall down on their face, right? And Jesus happened to him that, right? And remember, Jesus was disadvantaged more than anybody else was crucified because he has a crown of thorns around his head, right? So for him to fall, guess what's going to happen? These thorns just going to penetrate into his head. Once the crucifixion area was reached, the victim would then be nailed to the crossbar. The nails would be driven through the rests, through the rests, not through the palms, because this would not support the body weight. If they put the nails in the palm, it's not going to hold him. He cannot hold the weight. So they put the nails in, his, in the rests. The crossbar would be raised and placed on an upright post where the victim heals now. They, they, cruci- they nailed their heels. The, the victim heels would be nailed to that post. Once crucified, the victim would live for a period ranging from few hours to few days, depending on how bad the scourging was. If they scourged them really bad in the beginning, then they die faster. If the scourging wasn't that awful, then they last a little bit longer on torment hanging up on that tree. How does somebody die? Well, um, how does somebody die when they're crucified? Here is how it works. The initial scourging will weaken the victim, cause massive blood loss, and probably induce shock. By the time the victim has carried the crossbar to the crucifixion area, he would be exhausted. Once upon the cross, the the victim would have his body weight suspended by his nails in the arms. In this position, it is difficult to completely exhale. When somebody's hanged like that, and they're just hanging on a tree, it's very hard for them to breathe. The victim will take shallow breath for a while, just just breathing, trying to catch shallow breath. But eventually, he would be forced to push himself up to take an actual breath, a full breath. At this point, when they're trying to lift themselves up on the cross to actually breathe, three things happen. Number one, the victim's weight is now fully supported by his feet. Remember, he's trying to lift himself up to breathe. The, the weight is fully supported in his feet. The nails through the feet, the feet would likely to hit two major nerves running through this area. The result will be excruciating pain in the leg. That's, the point. That's where the first thing going to happen. Second thing, the nails in the wrist would likely to pierce the main nerves running through the arm as the victim pushes up to breathe. Again, he's trying to breathe. The wrists would, would rotate against the nails, irritating the nerves and causing intense pain in the arms. Some authorities also believe that the crucifixion position would dislocate the shoulders or elbow and any movement would aggravate the pain from this injury. Can you imagine your shoulders dislocated? You're just trying to breathe. You lift yourself up and the pain from the rest and the shoulders and the elbows is just shooting everywhere. That's the, that's the second thing happened. The third thing is the wound on the victim back from the scourging will push up against the rough part of the centerpiece. Remember, their back is so torn. Even the muscle is broken. The wood tend to reopen that wood. Reopen the wounds, leading to more pain and blood loss. That's just to breathe. Just to breathe. The combination of pain would 
quickly force the victim to lower themselves back down. I can't do it. Eventually, the victim would no longer be able to raise himself up and would suffocate. So they will die of suffocation on the cross. The shock from the blood loss to the scourging would hasten the process. In some cases, if they last a little bit longer, they just cut, break their feet. And when they break their feet, they just can't lift their se- themselves up to breathe. And they just suffocate in, in the matter of minutes. And this is, we, we read about that in the Gospels, that, that it was Sunday coming and the Jews just wanted to break. And they went and they broke the legs of the other two, the two thieves that were with Jesus. But Jesus was already dead at that point, so they didn't break his feet. And what they do at that time, if they cannot break your feet, or if they think you're dead, they just put a sword in you or a, a spear or something, just to make sure, just in case, there is still an ounce of strength in you, you're totally dead. Now, this is how normal crucifixion will happen. Jesus crucifixion was even worse than normal crucifixion. There was so much bad extra things going on for Jesus. Look at this. Jesus crucifixion mostly followed the standard procedure, although there has been some differences. Let's let's count them. The first one when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? When he was praying and the Bible said that his sweat became like drops of blood. There is a condition called hemo, um, hemohydrosis, which occurs to people under extreme, listen to this, extreme physical or emotional stress. The blood vessel in their sweat glands rupture and leak blood into the sweat. The effect is one of sweating blood. Several authorities believe that this is plausible explanation to what happened on Jesus. So even though he might not have bled much with that sweat, but that tells us an indication, gives us indication that he was under so much emotional and physical pain that his blood vessels raptured and he sweat that blood. That's just for a starter. Now remember, Jesus, he was captured on Thursday, right? Thursday night. And he was crucified on Friday about 3 o'clock or like in the noontime around that And throughout that night, he didn't eat, and they kept taking him back and forth, being beaten by the soldier, mocked everywhere he goes. So no sleep. Remember, he starts with extreme stress and physical pain. And then for almost 18 following hours, no sleep, no food, just being beaten and mocked and spit at and just being mistreated by every single possible Roman soldier. This is not even, crucifixion haven't even started yet. The scourging haven't even started yet. And then, again, typically a prisoner would be able to carry his cross from the place of scourging to the place of the crucifix. That's just pretty standard. They still have some strength. They can carry 75 pounds. But remember what happened with Jesus. He couldn't carry that cross. Why? Because he was already more exhausted, more tired than everybody else that has ever been crucified. He couldn't carry his own cross. They have to get that guy, Simon, from Libya so he can carry his cross and take it to the cross. And then they crucify Jesus following the, follow, the normal standard. And then, for three dark hours, now this is the, all what we're talking about so far is how human treated Jesus, right? Now, for three hours on the cross while it's dark, now God Almighty is coming to take the price of sin from the Lamb of God on the cross. Imagine, we talked about how hell looks like in my second week I was here. And if you remember, we said that God will punish every single sinner by throwing them in a lake of fire, right? If you remember, we said 
Hell is like this liquid lava that comes out of the volcanoes and it just burns at almost 2,000 degrees, right? That's what we talked about. And it just liquid fire for all eternity where every single sinner is going to be tormented for all eternity because they sinned against God, right? Now imagine the wrath of God again is not just, this is God's wrath on one sinner, right? Imagine the wrath of God over every single sinner, over every single sin was ever committed to be condensed and to be poured out on the Lamb of God on the cross. On top of that physical pain and how human crucified him. This is what Jesus had to go through so he can save you and me from what we earned, which is our, right, our just judgment before God. Do you see how much Jesus humbled himself? He went all the way down. Paul precisely said, even to the point of death, the death on the cross. He went down to no human being, maybe even allowed to go there because he loves you and me so much. Remember, this is the one who existed in the very nature of God. This is the one that when Isaiah saw him being in the temple, he said that angels were just covering his, their eyes before him and one shout to the other, holy, 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 Jesus, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Angels cannot behold his glory because he's so glorious. Yet that very Jesus came down to take the form of a slave for you and for me. And that wasn't good enough for him. He ended up on that cross to die this shameful, disgraceful, despicable death for you and me so you and I can be called children of God. Amen? Amen. I don't know about you. If this is not going to motivate you to lay it all down for him, I don't think of anything will ever do that to you. I just won't. Let's just close our eyes and pray. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.